Hello, everyone. I am so excited to be back with you this week on Bye Bye Bye, where we look at the intersectionalities of being biracial, bicultural, bisexual. This week's book is going to be by Casper Terkyle, The Power of Ritual. This is the power of reading books as a sacred practice. They can help us know who we are and decide who we might want to become. Harry Potter holds a special place for me as a sacred text. More on that in a minute. So I wanted to start kind of a new tradition on the podcast, and that is starting the podcast with a recap in haiku form that I do right on the spot. So let's see if I can get this right. We all use ritual. All right, that's a little bit of a cheat. Um, It is powerful for us. (laughs) Um, Create community. (laughs) All right, again, a little bit of a cheat, but I think I'll get better with time. If you all have some interesting haikus you'd like to send my way, please drop them into my DM on Instagram, and I will read some of the most impressive ones on the next episode. This week, we are diving into the book, The Power of Ritual, Turning Everyday Activities into Soulful Practices by Casper Terkyle. But before we get into that, I want to encourage you all to check out the Patreon page for as little as $5 a month. You all can become subscribers and receive a bonus episode each week. So this week, we're doing a very cool bonus episode. We are going through one of the practices that Casper Tail Kyle talks about in his book, which is called Lectio Divina, where we take a passage and we go through four stages of that passage, where we look at the actual literal context, we dive into some keywords and symbolisms of that passage, then we move forward to look at application, and finally, we ask ourselves, what is this text calling us to do? So that's going to be available exclusively on Patreon this week. So I encourage you to check it out. So I am back. And this week we are looking at the power of ritual. And I think it's such an interesting book because I think it fits the blend of what I would consider bicultural, right? It's this person who is taking a very Christian practice, a very Christian lens, Uh, grew up in an agnostic household, but went to seminary, kind of similar to myself. I found myself vibing uh, with this character as I was reading through this book this week, because he takes something that's very Christian in its tradition, you know, Lectio Divina, ritual, the ways that we build community around ritual, And he's also secularizing it in some sense. And I hate to use that word, but I'll use it every so often uh, to talk about non-religious communities. So it's this beautiful blend of these two worlds. And I think it falls into like the biculturality of it, because there's a part of him that is very, you know, his own person, his own space, kind of in this agnostic background and setting. And then he's also been immersed into a very religious setting because he's a graduate of Harvard Divinity School. And he's finding this beautiful synthesis of saying, hey, this is how Christian practices can be lived out in our everyday life and not just in this very narrow scope 
of what we think of as church. So Casper begins the book by talking about how COVID-19 and the global pandemic has really changed the way that we do community. There are a lot of people who are not able or not willing to engage in a weekly communal service like church anymore, but people are still finding community. There are other things that we build our life around that are ritualistic in its practice. I've rewatched You've Got Mail many, many times, but it represents so much more to me than just a movie now because I've made it more meaningful. I have very specific rituals for when and how to watch, always alone, always with a tub of pralines and cream haagen ice cream. Certain lines are inscribed on my heart like mantras. Characters are totems of how I want to be or not be in the world. While for most people, it's just another rom-com. For me, You've Got Mail is sacred. So I love this because, you know, he's talking about how he's related to something like a movie in a way that we would relate to something like the Bible, right? That these characters become totems of how I want to be, he says, or not be in the world. So other people just see it as a rom-com, but he, for him, there's something sacred about this. Casper Terkyle has started a podcast called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Now, it's so interesting. This is one of my favorite points that he brings out in the book is he talks about how there are some people who, for whatever reason, are never going to want to interact with the Bible. He talks about how he was introduced to reading books like sacred texts. Now, what I mean by that is he's reading not for the plot of the story or for the shock factor, but for the meaning and the significance behind that. So, for example, he was invited to a book club where they were going to start reading Jane Eyre as a sacred text. And it began to raise questions about you know, mental health and mental illness and all of these other, you know, kinds of conversations that might not normally happen when you're in a book club. And so he started this podcast called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, which I love. And I totally recommend you guys listening to it because they look at the book Harry Potter and they look for the meaning behind it. They do Lectio Divina through it, uh, where they pick a singular sentence within a chapter and they begin exploring like, okay, well, what's the application here? Like, how is this speaking into my life right now? What is it calling me forth to do? And they really get into some deep dives of like character analysis and psychology and like their own personal experiences and journeys, which I find to be very wholesome. So this is a really exciting part of the book. I really love this line. We can treat a book as sacred, not because we're going to believe that the storylines within it somehow explain the mysteries of the universe, but because they help us to be kinder, more compassionate. And I think that this is sometimes what we are missing within kind of, you know, faith communities when they look at something like movies or documentaries or books and they say, you know, you shouldn't read this because, you know, they're talking about witchcraft, like looking at Harry Potter, right? This is about witches, right? 
But most people don't read the book because they're trying to figure out how to do witchcraft. They're not looking for an explanation of how the world works. They're looking for stories to model themselves after, to be kinder, more compassionate people. Now, when I look at like myself, when I'm thinking about, well, how does this apply to me, right? Where do I see myself within this storyline? And I think about when I was younger in the seventh grade, I really started taking to reading. I lost one of my best friends and I kind of fell into this depression and I didn't have a really close community. And so I just fell into books. And some of my favorite books that I had read, you know, they had dragons and warriors and all this kind of stuff. But I remember being a little bit internally conflicted because I'm like, hey, there's all this magical element happening here. There are these dragons and uh, I love this, the storyline that's happening here, but should I not, right? I'm thinking about this and I'm 12 years old and I'm wondering, you know, uh, is this somehow like influencing me in a, in a way that's not really known to me? And when I look back and I think, well, why was I reading this? I think I wanted books that were going to open my world to a new adventure. And there were books also, now this is what I try to tell people who are pastors or if you're teaching the Bible, there are not a lot of positive female representations in the Bible, right? Well, people will say, well, look at Esther, look at, you know, Abigail, look at um, Deborah. Okay, great. These are awesome beautiful representations of women. But outside of Deborah, name one woman where her righteousness is not somehow connected to her either being a prostitute or a mom, right? There's something very innately sexualized about women in the Bible, whether it's Tamar or Rahab, or even stories like Esther, who was, you know, the king's boo, right? Like, these are women who often live in contrast to a very sexualized context, right? Like marry the prostitute, marry the mother. Um, these are, there are a few people who started churches like uh, Priscilla, who is the wife of Aquila. You have Junius, but these are not prominent figures. These typically are not the characters that we hear sermons taught about. We're listening to stories about David and Abraham and Jacob and Joseph and the people who fill up the most pages. And so for women to find themselves in the scripture in a bold, daring way, sometimes you just won't. And it's okay for me to get that empowerment in some other space, that that's not contradictory to holiness. So I loved women warriors, right? Like, women who became knights and fought dragons. And, and this was kind of like my childish world that I loved to see this empowering perspective of like, yeah, like I can take on giants, like I can slay dragons, like I can do anything a man can do. And that was the, the lesson and the meaning that I received from that type of reading, that I was a powerful woman, even in my young age, and that the limit of what I could do was not limited by my gender. These are things that I needed for my education. These are things that were important for my self-identity. 
if we can just move beyond this idea that the reason why we watch movies or read books is because we're trying to learn about the mysteries of the universe, we can move beyond that belief and be like, actually, we're trying to learn about how to be a kinder, more compassionate human being. We're trying to see ourselves in these characters and relate to their struggles. We're trying to find a way to overcome our own demons. And these are characters that help us achieve that. And I love that that's what Casper Terkyle is talking about here, that, that we are interacting with the text in a way that is not looking for the things that we would look for when we read the Bible. We're looking for meaning and purpose and identity, and that that's a perfectly okay thing to do. explore in this chapter is the methodology of how to read as a sacred text. This will offer you countless new perspectives, insights about yourself, and opportunities to reflect on life questions. When we think about sacred texts, we think of the Bible, the Quran, the Torah, the Book of Mormon, or the Bhagavad Gita. We know these texts are full of stories, poems, and commandments. Some of the stories resonate but much of traditional religious literature makes us suspicious. He says something else that I think is really key. He says, but what about those of us who don't fit into a religious box or don't know where to start with a text like the Bible or don't even want to trust a book like that? If this applies to you, my hopes is that you'll join me in choosing a text of your own to treat as sacred, something you already love that you already find yourself turning to again and again. And I love this because I think it gives us an opportunity to have conversations that are meaningful and purpose-filled with people across religious traditions, that these are conversations where we can draw from our own faith practices, if we'd like, to bring our perspectives into a conversation, or we can just meet people where they are at. We can take a book or have them take one of their favorite books. Let's approach this from the perspective that there is meaning and life lessons in this and something that already feels true to who we are. Something that I would have told my 12, 13-year-old self in the seventh grade reading about women slaying dragons is that these texts are actually very helpful in providing for me an identity that is strong and able and fierce and warrior-like, right? I can look at a character like Alana and very easily make a leap to the story of David because I've seen a story already where a woman is able to take down giants. And I don't have to deny the things that uniquely make me a woman to be able to make that type of parallel to myself. So I find this just incredibly helpful because we can completely meet people where they are at and invite them into conversations, into a book club, where we can begin having meaningful conversations based on texts that they already enjoy and learn something about that person. Why is this appealing to them? How is this serving to provide an image of themselves that they want to aspire to? How can we validate the goodness of what that is? This is such a beautiful way of looking at the world. So we're going to get into the four things that Casper Terrell Kyle 
does when he's approaching a book as sacred text. So Lexio Divino is a monastic practice. And this was a practice that focused on quality rather than quantity. So rather than reading an entire chapter from the Bible, they would say, just take a single sentence. And it was called the ladder of the monks. And this four-step process was a way to engage the text for a rich, deep, divine meaning. There's a quote that Casper Terkyle quotes. It says, rather than reading the entire chapters in the Bible, Guigo instructs his students to choose just a sliver of a text to chew on. Do you know how much juice has come from one little grape? How great a fire has been kindled from a spark? How the small piece of metal has been stretched on the anvil of meditation? That meditation is a beautiful part of our Christian tradition that we can bring with us to other parts of our secular life. And so here are some of the four steps. Step one, you know, what's literally happening in the narrative? Where are we in the story? So that's a part where you're just looking at context, looking at the surrounding passages, and just kind of getting your footing into the text and saying, okay, where am I? Stage two is what allegorical images, stories, songs, or metaphors show up for you? So that means looking at keywords. Why is that a keyword that appeals to you? And it's something that doesn't even have to be correct. It can just be what's appealing to you. So there's no right way to go about doing this. Uh, stage three is what experiences have you had in your own life that come to mind when you're reading this? So now you're connecting to the text. You're looking at yourself in relation to this text and you are getting some type of insight. And then stage four, what action are you being called to take? Now, I love this quote from his book. It says, sometimes what the text calls us to do is life-changing. Maybe we let go of an ancient hurt or we step up to a new responsibility. Sacred reading isn't always pleasant as we've explored. It can bring up difficulty and pain even if only because reading something as if it is sacred means that we have to be willing to be changed. If our hearts and our imagination and our commitment to our deepest values have not expanded through a sacred reading practice, then we haven't been reading sacredly. There are so many meaningful, awesome thoughts in Casper Turkow's book, The Power of Ritual, so I recommend checking it out. He even has a section on Sabbath and how he incorporates Sabbath into his weekly regimen and what that means for him. And so there are so many interesting rituals that we can begin to partake in. This one I found most significant because I'd like to incorporate it in some of the future podcasts. So the book has five different chapters. One, connecting with self. Two, connecting with others. Three, connecting with nature. Four, connecting with transcendence. And five, already connected. Another portion that I appreciated 
was this incorporation of connection to animals and to nature and to the natural world. He said something that was very reflective and poetic. Some people might interpret it as pantheism, but that's not at all what he's talking about. But I just want to read a couple sentences to you for you to get an idea. It says, seeing the world as self. No longer is nature something outside of us, a landscape for us to admire or even to love. Instead, we are nature. The great environmental activist John Seed embodies this when he says, I try to remember that it's not me, John, trying to protect the rainforest. Rather, I am part of the rainforest protecting itself. It is destabilizing to think this way, but my sense is that we've each had moments of this kind of experience, the flash of mysterious at-homeness when we look at the night sky, the magical feeling of being both an inconsequent speck amid a vast landscape, and yet as uncountably large as the universe itself. This paradigm is known as deep ecology. Physically embodying the natural world helps shift our mindset to remind us in some great cosmic wisdom that we are the carrot. And the reason why I love this is because we really do have a vested interest in our planet being sustainable, right? It's a planet that we live on. So it's showing this deep connectedness that sometimes we think, well, the rainforest problem is the rainforest's problem. You know, the melting polar ice caps, that's, you know, the Arctic's problem. But really, this is a human problem. Even if we were to think about it in the most selfish of terms, right, that sustainability really has to do with human life on this planet. And yes, it's connected to other forms of life, other birds and mammals and fish. And it's important for us to see ourselves as part of an ecosystem, not just as human beings who are living inside of some other ecosystem. We are part of the environment. And so this deep type of connectivity, ways that we can invite ourselves into reminding ourselves that we are a part of an ecosystem, And I think some people are able to escape those direct consequences because they have economic means, right? Um, I think the people who are the most affected are the people who are on the lower parts of the food chain. You know, people who have less economic access, less ability to relocate, or they're just maybe in a bad uh, ecological zone to deal with the issues that come with climate change. So I think people with money might be able to outrun some of the effects longer, but it really is starting to affect even humankind. Another portion that I enjoyed was connection with transcendence. And this is a small excerpt from that chapter. And he says, Traditionally, of course, adoration would have been about explicitly worshiping God. This might resonate for some, but if it doesn't, I suggest you find ways of lifting your attention toward the larger beauty of the world, to the greater connection that holds all things. You might want to read a poem to find yourself, or find a small selection of music tracks that move you. And of course, if God language works for you, go for it. What matters to me is that sense of adoration of something bigger than ourselves. Theologian Renita J. Weems argues that we are wired for worship, so we are going to end up worshiping something. Better to be intentional about what that something is, instead of falling into the trap of worshiping money, status, and power, as so much of our dominant culture does. 
So I love this idea that one, we're going to worship. It's just kind of hardwired in our nature and that we get to set the intention for what it is that we do worship. And it reminds me of a road trip that I had uh, when I was coming to Michigan about three years ago in the summertime. And I decided that I'm going to make this road trip very intentional. I'm going to hit all the big national parks. So I'm hitting Yosemite. I'm hitting Monument Valley. I'm going to Horseshoe Bend. I went to the Grand Canyon. I went to the Colorado Rockies, the Garden of the Gods. I mean, I really hit as many of these national parks as I could along the way. And as I'm driving from the West Coast to the East Coast, you see this change of landscape. You know, you go from desert and rock and something that's beautiful in its own right to different plush mountains of the Colorado Rockies. And I remember as I was driving through the different landscapes and remaining in prayer and connection with God, I began to think, man, you are connected, Lord, to every human being as well as animal. And as I'm driving through the desert, like, you know which lizards and mice are thirsty for water. You know their habitats and where they live and where they're going to get their next drink of water. You know where they're going to have their next meal. You know which ones are going to die and not make it. You know the interventions that you've already planned to continue to sustain life, even in areas of the world that nobody is watching. It reminded me of this Bible verse in the book of Job in chapter 38 to 40, where God is having this dialogue with Job and saying, Do you know the world like I know it? And he's basically telling Job, like giving him all of these riddles and questions. And he says, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry out to God for help and wander about for lack of food? You know, God is saying, I am connected to larger problems than your own. I am constantly dealing with where this animal is going to get its next food source, which ones are going to die, which ones are going to go through a process of maybe starvation for a time. And I'm going to orchestrate things so that they get their next meal and their next drink of water, right? Like he's like, I am connected to so many different things. And as I was driving through and observing like this, these parched barren lands within the landscape and how God is connected to that. It made me think, God, there are parts of you that I don't know how to connect to because your world is so much bigger than my world. There are parts of you that have to hold space for suffering and tiredness and parchedness in the land. And then there are parts of you that are filled with much more abundance, you know, where food is not scarce Right? And there's so much complexity to even the experience of what God is experiencing. And to me, it personalized my experience with my surrounding ecosystem, right? To know that it's not just this entity that exists outside and is living apart from me, but that this ecosystem is something that matters very deeply to the God that I serve and something that he is participating in and all of its beauty, and all of the suffering, and all of the changes that are happening climactically, weather patterns, 
and food patterns and animal habitats. These are things that he is all affected by. And it's because of my connection to him, right, that I end up caring about things that I might not have an immediate context to care for. So this was something that brought me to this idea of wonder, right? There's so much more to God than what I might encounter in my day-to-day habits, right? We get into our habits of driving to work or to school and to the grocery store and interacting with the few group of friends that we have, right? And we get into these patterns. And these patterns sometimes are not very large. And it's hard to get outside of ourselves and see there is a great, big, wide world out there, full of wonder and full of awe. So there are so many things that I enjoyed from this book, The Power of Ritual, which I really recommend getting into. He takes such a deep and beautiful dive into bringing meaning into some of our everyday habitual practices and finding ways to connect with ourself, our community, with God, and with one another. As far as this practice of Lectio Divina, this week's Patreon episode is one where we exclusively explore this practice, and we do this with the Bible. We take a passage and we go through all four steps that he recommends us going through. It's actually a really interesting adventure that I would encourage you all to check it out. If you have the chance, for as little as $5 a month, you all can get an extra bonus episode every week and really help to support this channel and continue with the creation of content. Once again, I just want to say thank you to everyone out there who takes the time to listen to these podcasts. So in the tradition of ritual and learning how important it is for us to construct meaning in our everyday lives, I want to begin ending this podcast with a blessing. So I want to bless something that I found interesting in this book this week, and I want to bless our inner compass. It's often been something that I have doubted, but I also want to bless the trust that we have in our own internal compasses, that they are being led and guided by God in a sacred process. And that as long as we continue on the journey of seeking north, we will find the answers that we've been looking for. So that's my special blessing for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. And I so look forward to continuing this conversation with you all next week.